So tonight we come to another section of Genesis pertaining to God's covenant with Abraham. I say Abraham, I should probably say Abram to begin with, but in this passage, God changes his name to Abraham. So I'm jumping the gun a little bit here. But we come to another section pertaining to God's covenant with Abraham. Many of the promises here in chapter 17 have already been made to Abraham or Abram in earlier chapters, so we won't go over them in the same amount of detail as we've already done. Rather, tonight, the focus, the takeaway, is on Abraham and Sarah's contrasting responses when God says, so to speak, it's time. All that I promised is soon to be fulfilled through your very own son, Isaac. You see, God's not making a new or additional covenant with Abraham in this chapter. The translation that the ESV gives us, King James is the same in chapter 17 and verse 2 is unfortunate. It says, I may make my covenant between me and you, which almost gives us the impression that this is a new thing. But according to Hebrew scholars, of which I am not one, the word translated here as make should actually be more like something like fulfill or establish or bring to pass, something more along those lines. The NASB hits closer to the mark when it says establish instead of make. The sense here is that now it is time for all these things that have been promised that Abraham's been waiting so long for. Now it's time for him to see these things begin to happen particularly through his son, Isaac. You remember that Abram has been waiting many, many years for these things to come to pass. He's now 99 years old. His son, Ishmael, is now 13 years old. So it's been 13 years now between chapter 16 and chapter 17 of Genesis. 13 years since Abram took matters into his own hands and tried to conceive a child who would be the fulfillment of God's promises to him with his maidservant, Hagar. God is coming now saying basically, okay, Abram, now it's time for you to have that son that I promised you. That's what's going on here in Genesis chapter 17. Then God goes on to simply reiterate what he's already promised to Abram in Genesis 12 and 15. These things that he promises here in Genesis chapter 17 have already been spoken. Genesis 12 and Genesis 15. But here God adds to the promises a stipulation that all males in Abram's family be circumcised. And God changes both Abram and Sarai's Names to Abraham and Sarah, respectively. In this passage, we also see Abraham and Sarah respond. So that's kind of big picture what's going on here in this passage. Let's look now more closely at what's going on. We'll deal first with God's promises. Then we'll deal with circumcision. Then we'll deal with the name changes. And then we'll finish with Abraham and Sarah's contrasting responses. So firstly, God's promises. By way of reminder, God has promised to Abram land, 
people and kings. All the things that constitute a kingdom. In fact, here in this passage, Genesis chapter 17, God is promising kingdoms, plural, nations. God is promising that kingdoms or nations are going to come from Abraham. Of course, this would include the nation that he says he's going to make of Ishmael, 17 and verse 20. As for Ishmael, I have heard you. Behold, I have blessed him and will make him, a f- make him fruitful and multiply him greatly. He shall father 12 princes and I will make him into a great nation. And the nations promised here would also include the nation that he makes of Isaac and Isaac's son Jacob and their descendants, the 12 tribes of Israel. But as Galatians chapter 4 verses 21 to 31 have taught us even the Old Testament theocratic nation of Israel was never intended to be the ultimate fulfillment of God's promises to Abraham. Rather, the nation of Israel was a type, a shadow, a picture of an even greater reality, a people rescued not from slavery in Egypt, but slavery in sin. A people brought out not by the mediator Moses, but by the mediator Jesus. A people not ruled by David himself, but a people ruled by David's greater son. As Psalm 110 says to us, the Lord said to my Lord, and Jesus asks if he's David's son, how come David calls him Lord? This enigmatic figure of David's greater son, the Lord Jesus Christ. The people possessing not only Canaan, but as Romans 4 tells us, the whole world. A people consisting not only of Jews, but of Jews and Gentiles. A people from every tribe and language and people and nation. All redeemed, not by the blood of literal lambs, but by the blood of the one of whom John the Baptist said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. A people whose priest is not of the order of Levi, but a priest, a people whose priest is of the order of Melchizedek. Even this nation, Israel, which was to proceed through Abram, through Isaac, through Jacob to become a great nation, the nation of Israel, with whom the, New, the Old Testament deals so thoroughly. Even this nation, theocratic, ruled by God, through divinely appointed kings and prophets, and a system of priests. Even this nation was never intended to be the ultimate fulfillment of God's promises to Abraham. This is what Galatians chapter 4 teaches us. There are two covenants which trace their roots all the way back to Abraham. There's a covenant made at Sinai, Galatians tells us explicitly, and then the context of that passage in Galatians 4 clearly insinuates that the other covenant is that covenant made in Christ's blood, namely the new covenant or the covenant of grace, which has been active in different forms throughout all history from when Adam fell into sin until Christ shall return to consummate all things, first in promise and then in fulfillment. 
Go back and listen to the last few sermons on Genesis if you're not too sure about these glorious realities yet. But rest assured, mark my words, that after careful study, you will see that the kingdom that is the ultimate fulfillment of God's promises to Abraham, the way that the New Testament talks about it, is not the kingdom formed at Sinai through the Sinaitic covenant, but the kingdom formed at a different mountain, Mount Calvary, through the blood of Christ Jesus shed for us, which we celebrate every morning at the Lord's table. The nation formed by that covenant, those people, those are the ones reckoned as Abraham's descendants in an ultimate sense. Those are the ones counted as children of promise. This is the New Testament witness. So these are the promises made to Abraham, which we've already looked at in Genesis 12 and Genesis 15. They're simply reiterated here in Genesis chapter 17 as God comes to Abraham and basically says, it's time for that son I promised you to be born. For the first domino to be knocked over in chain of events that will bring to pass everything that I have promised you to date. For the first domino to be knocked over in a chain of events that will bring about the seed through whom all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. The first domino to be knocked over in the fulfillment of the promise that I made to give you the land of Canaan and your descendants after you. The first domino to be knocked over in the chain of events that will will bring about, in fact, many nations from your loins. God comes to Abraham and is basically reiterating these things and saying, now it's time for these promises to begin to be fulfilled. Bear them in mind and we'll revisit them. Now let's look at circumcision. Of course, physically, circumcision is the removal of the foreskin at the tip of the penis. God gives Abraham this sign to demarcate him and his descendants from the surrounding nations. This is a sign of the covenant that God makes with Abraham. And there's an organic continuity between the covenant made at Sinai and God's dealings with Abraham way back here in Genesis. In John chapter 7, I believe it is, God says that Moses gave you circumcision. Well, actually, it's not from Moses, but from the fathers. And so we see that organic continuity. And Galatians develops that idea again when it says, whoever receives circumcision is obligated to keep the whole law. There's this organic continuity with God's dealings with Abraham and then God's dealings with the Old Testament nation of Israel. The physical sign of this covenant is circumcision. But the rest of the Bible unfolds this symbolism further. In Colossians chapter 2 and verse 11, the foreskin symbolizes, quote, the body of flesh. Which doesn't mean our physical body, the body composed of flesh. But rather the constitution or the bulk, the matter of our sinful nature. The way that we might say there's a body of knowledge. Body in that sense. The body of the flesh. And flesh, again, doesn't always mean in Scripture physicality. Rather, flesh is often contrasted with holiness or righteousness. And so, a fairly good synonym for flesh 
is, in these types of cases, sinful nature. Thus, the body of flesh, the way that Colossians 2.11 uses it, is the sinful nature. And the circumcision, the removal of the foreskin, symbolizes the removal of the sinful nature. This is what Galatians, or pardon me, Colossians 2.11 teaches us, that that's what it signifies, that there's this inward reality corresponding to the physicality of circumcision. Turn with me to Colossians 2 and see this for yourself. Paul writes, In Him that is in Christ Jesus, also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, so we're not talking about physical circumcision, by putting off the body of the flesh or the sinful nature by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with Him in baptism, in which you were also raised with Him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised Him from the dead. Thus we see that the sinful nature is symbolized by the foreskin, and circumcision represents the cutting off or the removal of the sinful nature. Why this symbolism in particular? We're not told explicitly, but perhaps because, especially in men, our sexual desires, our sexual impulses are some of the strongest and hardest to control. And so perhaps here, God is taking a symbol of our, our distorted desires which have been marred by our sinful nature and is using that as a symbol of sort of striking at the root of even our strongest sinful inclinations and the way that the circumcision that we have received in and through Christ Jesus, the circumcision of the heart, symbolizes the putting off of that sinful nature. Perhaps that's the case, perhaps not. We're left, I think, to speculate as to the reasons why. But in any case, that's the nature of the comparison here. So according to Colossians 2.11, circumcision represents the putting off of the sinful nature. Now, here's a question. Did all of Abraham's descendants put off the sinful nature? Did all of Abraham's descendants experience the inward circumcision? which outward physical circumcision was designed to represent for us, as Paul writes to the Colossians? No. And so circumcision can't symbolize the actual removal of sinful nature, but rather the necessity of the removal of sinful nature. Did all of Abraham's descendants need to put off their sinful nature? Yes. All of Abraham's descendants needed their sinful nature removed. Now the Bible goes on to explain that this removal of the sinful nature is exactly what happens to those children of Abraham who are in God's eyes the fulfillment of the promises, the ultimate fulfillment of the promises. Take for example Romans chapter 2 and verse 29 which reads thus, But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the Spirit, 
not by letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. So again here we see that the true Jew is not the one who has experienced the outward circumcision, but that which the outward circumcision represents, namely the putting off of the sinful nature. So again, we see typology at work here. Remember, typology is God-ordained instances of similarity between actual, real, historical events, persons, institutions, etc., etc., that are designed in and of themselves to have some significance, but are also designed to point to an even greater reality. Again, we see typology at work here. Some of Abraham's offspring, his physical offspring, have their physical bodies circumcised. This is a historical reality that is significant in its own right. The Old Testament Jews were marked as distinct from the other nations by circumcision. And so there's an immediate fulfillment of God's promise to bring about a nation through Abraham's offspring that is fulfilled in the establishment of the nation of Israel who are circumcised in the body. But they foreshadowed a people who would be circumcised in heart. So we see typology at work again here. So as it is with priests, sacrifices, the temple, kings, etc., etc., so it is with circumcision. There are Old Testament realities present in the Jewish nation, which was established at Mount Sinai, which foreshadow and give us mental categories for thinking of the greater realities present in the nation which was established not at Mount Sinai, but at Mount Calvary in the new covenant or the covenant of grace. There is a truer, more ultimate priest in that covenant, the covenant established at Mount Calvary. There is a truer, more ultimate sacrifice in that covenant, the covenant established at Mount Calvary. There is a truer, more ultimate temple in that covenant, which was established at Calvary through Christ's blood. There is a truer, more ultimate king in that covenant. And there is a truer, more ultimate circumcision in that covenant. So that's what's going on in this passage pertaining to circumcision. It fits with the same paradigm that we've been dealing with over the last number of weeks, recognizing that there is an immediate fulfillment of the promises in the nation of Israel. And yet the nation of Israel was never intended to be ultimate, but was always intended to foreshadow and to signify a greater reality. As it is with the priests, the temple, the sacrifices, the kings, so it is also with circumcision. That's what's going on here in this passage. Now let's look at the name changes. God changes Abram's name to Abraham, which is a change from exalted father to father of many nations. This is an intensification. This is God doubling down on his promises, so to speak. As it was in Genesis chapter 15, where after several years, Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. Behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. 
Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven and number the stars if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. God responds to Abram's doubts and Abram's hesitations in the strongest possible way, intensifying. What I have spoken, I will surely bring to pass. In fact, not only are there going to be many descendants from you, there's going to be so many that they're going to be like the stars of heaven. Something similar is going on here in the name change. That not only is he exalted father, but he's the father of many nations. There's an intensification happening here. And God changes Sarai's name to Sarah, both of which actually mean princess. So the fundamental meaning doesn't change. Princesses give birth to kings. So this is a divine ratification of Sarah's role in the fulfillment of the promises made to Abraham. God is leaving his mark on her, so to speak, by changing her name. Not content to let her biological parents alone call her princess, but to add his yea and amen to this name that her parents have given her. It's as if he says, your parents have called you princess. Indeed, that's what you are. You are a princess and kings will come forth from your womb. And so again, there's this intensification. You already thought you were a princess. You already thought you were going to be a father. You're going to be a father of many nations. And indeed, you will be a princess. So that's what's going on with the naming. And what we see here is that this name change along with circumcision, are the formalities attached to the actual bringing to pass of that which has been promised to Abraham. So it's, it's almost as if you're sitting down now to sign the contract. It's time for the formalities. You've talked, you've reasoned back and forth, you've deliberated, you've taken counsel. All right, let's get down to business and sign these papers. Something like that is going on here. All right, Abram, we've talked about this for years and years. Now let's get down to business. Here's a couple formal things that are going to happen. You're going to have a new name now. You're going to be circumcised now. And I'm going to give you a son now. You're not waiting any longer for this. I'll return this time next year, and you're going to have a son. That's what's going on. God is getting down to business with Abraham and Sarah. So... In summary so far, what has happened is that God has promised to Abram great and wonderful things. Abram has been following God for many years. Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. When God said, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. And him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. This was God's initial word to Abram. And 24 years have passed. Almost a quarter of a century. God has said, Abram, you're going to have kings come from your loins. You're going to have descendants as numerous as the stars. You're going to possess this land that I'm going to show you. 
And over the course of these 24 years, God has repeated these promises. God has sworn to him with, as we talked about, a self-maledictory oath. Walking himself between the pieces of animals cut in half. Himself walking through, not once, and then asking Abram to pass through, but twice. The Lord himself passing through twice. Saying, as it were, this is what should happen to me. If I should break these promises, I should be severed in two like these animals. God has spoken and spoken and spoken and spoken to Abram. But he's just been speaking for 24 years. To put that in perspective, that would be 24 years from now, I would be 56. You can do the math on yourself. Imagine I just kept telling you something over and over and over for 24 years and you're not seeing anything. I'm just talking to you. I'm telling you, it's going to happen. It's going to happen. It's going to happen for sure. Definitely, it's going to happen. And in this case, the first domino, as I said earlier, is the birth of a son. And Abram is getting older and older and older. He's gone from age 75 to age 99. Sarah has gone from age 66 to 90. And there's still no son. God's been talking and talking and talking. And promising and promising and promising. I suspect that Abram was not... No longer functional sexually. Because we read in the New Testament that his body was as good as dead. And what you see is that Sarah's response in chapter 18 and verse 12 is not after I am worn out, shall I get pregnant? But she says in in 18 and verse 12, not after I am worn out, shall I get pregnant? But after I am worn out, shall I have pleasure? Which says to me that if his body was as good as dead, and Sarah wasn't having any pleasure, you put the two and two together, I don't think Abram was functioning sexually anymore. Experiencing erectile dysfunction. And so, God is promising over and over and over, you're going to have a son. All right, but it doesn't take a rocket scientist to know that I'm 99 and certain things that used to happen aren't happening anymore. And my wife is 90 years old. You see? God comes here in this passage. 13 years have elapsed between Genesis 16 when Abram took matters into his own hands with Hagar. Thirteen years have elapsed. And now God says, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless, that I may establish or fulfill, or to put it in parochial terms, that I may knock over the first domino in that chain of events that I have promised you. Let's get this thing going. You're going to have a son. That's what's going on here in this passage. 
And so all of these wanderings and all of these doubts that have been multiplying in Abram's mind over these last 24 years are suddenly confronted by God saying, okay, now, have you ever had something where you just waited and waited with great anticipation? Probably not for 24 years, but let's say a vacation or something like that. And then finally you're at the airport or you're on the plane or you get off the plane and get checked into your hotel room and you're like, wow, it's really happening. This is what's going on in this passage. Abraham is suddenly confronted with it. We're not talking anymore. This is going to happen now. That's what's going on in this passage. I'm going to have a son who's going to be the first domino in a chain of events. Descendants as numerous as the stars. Land, kings, nations. It would have seemed too good to be true. We read in chapter 17 and verse 17, Then Abram fell on his face and laughed and said to himself, Shall a child be born to a man who is a hundred years old? Shall Sarah, who is ninety years old, bear a child? And Abram said to God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. This is not, this is actually, I don't think doubt, you know, because of the New Testament witness. The New Testament witness tells us that he didn't waver concerning the promises. And he believed the promises. So I think what's going on here, and this is why we read from Luke 1 earlier, I think this is like Mary's question. Just like, how can it be? As Mary says, how can it be? Since I'm a virgin, how am I going to have a child? Zechariah disbelieves. His questionings are scoffing, doubting questionings. Mary's questions are just incredulous questions. That's what's going on here with, with Abram. You ever just been so happy and so overwhelmed that you laugh? It's like, why, it's like, why are you laughing? I don't know. I don't know. I'm just so happy. I was, even, I was even, to put it in much smaller terms, I was even watching that video that Kamar took when he, he videoed my birthday celebration in Antigua. And one of the things I noticed was that I was chuckling. When I came through, I was chuckling because it just surprised me and shocked me that I just came home from exercising and some of the guys had gone out and bought me a cake. And so here I was grinning from ear to ear and chuckling to myself. Was something funny? Not really. I was just happy and I just was chuckling. Have you ever just felt so joyful? You're just, you're just laughing. Somebody gives you something or something happens, something comes to pass. And you're giddy. You're, you can't stop smiling. You're laughing to yourself. Oh, I just can't believe it. I just can't believe this is really happening. Abram bowed on his face. This is reverence. This is homage. And we see in his response, Genesis 17 and verse 26, that very day, Abram and his son Ishmael were circumcised. He wasted no time. He believed these things. But he just fell down. Shall a son be born? To a man who is a hundred years old? I can't believe it. Shall my wife who is 90 actually give birth to a son? I just can't believe this. Oh, Lord, I, I have a son. Let Ishmael live before you. God says, no, your very own son, Isaac, he's going to be the first domino in this chain of events. And Abram is just overjoyed about this shocked 
He can't believe what's going on. That's what's happening here in this passage. Sarah's response is different. Sarah's response is she laughs to herself in chapter 18 and verse 12, saying, After I am worn out and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? You can almost hear the cynicism. You can almost hear the, yeah, right. Even in the words that she utters. After I'm worn out and my Lord is old, shall I really have pleasure? Her laughing is the is laughing that comes from scoffing and mocking. We've probably all at some point in our lives been the butt of a joke where people have laughed at us, where we've been mocked, where, where we've been scoffed at. This is, this is what's going on here. She's scoffing at the promises. The Lord says to Abram, Why did Sarah laugh and say, Shall I indeed bear a child now that I'm old? This is an implicit rebuke, which shows us, right? The New Testament witness shows us that Abram's laughter was not laughter of disbelief. Romans 4, if you want to go read that. But the Lord's response to Sarah shows us that her laughter was different. He says, is anything too hard for the Lord? The Lord says this, is anything too hard for the Lord? Remember, how did he introduce himself at the beginning of the chapter? I am God Almighty. Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will return to you. About this time next year, and Sarah shall have a son. But Sarah denied it. Again, this is the outworking of a guilty conscience. You don't deny something that's neither here nor there. You don't deny laughing if laughing is completely appropriate. You deny laughing if you shouldn't have laughed. Sarah denied it, saying, I did not laugh, for she was afraid. He said, no, but you did laugh. So we see Abram and Sarah's contrasting Responses. We know that Abram perceived in the promises either by deduction or by special revelation not recorded for us in Scripture. We knew that Abram perceived the ultimate anti-typical fulfillment of the promises. We knew that we know that Abram wasn't looking for the earthly city of Jerusalem. We know that he wasn't looking for the physical country of Canaan. We know that. Hebrews 11 tells us that. We read that by faith Abram obeyed Hebrews 11 verse 8 when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith he went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder 
is God. And again, a little bit later we read, If they, including Abram, he's speaking of all of those whom he's already mentioned, 11.15, Hebrews 11.15, If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. So we know that Abram perceived something of the ultimate fulfillment of these promises, not in the earthly city of Jerusalem under the dynasty of David and his descendants. We know that Abram didn't see the physical borders of Canaan as the ultimate boundary of his inheritance. But we know that he was looking forward to those things, for those things were promised. Those were real, actual promises made to Abram. No less real than my two boys are my sons. But Abram also somehow perceived the fact that his, the city that he was really ultimately looking for was not the city that would be later known as Jerusalem. The country that he was ultimately looking for was not that land that would come to be known as Israel. Abram was looking for a better city and a heavenly country. And so, again, God comes to him, says, I'm about to knock over that first domino. You're going to have a son. And somehow Abram perceived that not only did this mean Canaan, not only did this mean Jerusalem, though I'm quite sure he didn't know David by name, not only did this mean a king like David, who by and large ruled well, who by and large defended and protected God's people from their enemies, who by and large subjected the enemies of God to the people of God. Abram perceived that not only did this mean a land like Canaan, and not only did this mean a king like David, but Abram perceived a heavenly country and a city whose builder and foundation is God. Remember, we already know by this stage in redemptive history that there is a Messiah coming. We already know that there is going to be a seed of the woman who will crush the serpent's head. Abram perceived somehow that this would be the seed in whom all the nations of the earth would be blessed. Galatians chapter 3. So God comes to Abram and Abram laughs with joy, with exuberant joy that God's promises which had been spoken for 24 years are now to be fulfilled. We should note that exuberant joy is not out of bounds for the Christian. We should notice that exuberant joy is not out of bounds for the people of faith. One of the commentators that I read this past week preparing for tonight was talking about the excesses of what was called the Toronto Blessing. Of course, I'm very familiar with it as it happened not far from my home. Y'all might be as well. Basically, it was this wildly charismatic phase that a church in Toronto went through 
people were people were rolling around on the floor laughing, barking like dogs, all kinds of wild stuff. And this commentator noted, notwithstanding the excesses of the Toronto blessing, we shouldn't be afraid of spontaneous outbursts of joy. We shouldn't be afraid of exuberant joy in the face of God's wonderful, beautiful, gloriously grand promises. From time to time, if I may put it this way, we should fall on our faces and laugh with giddy, exuberant joy. From time to time, we should just be dumbfounded, shocked about just how great this, how can this actually be? How can this actually be? Wow. From time to time, we should just smile. Big smiles. Not, not polite smiles, but those kind of smiles that make your cheeks hurt after a little while. Those kind of smiles that, that after a while you just wish you could stop smiling because it hurts so bad and your gums are so dry. From time to time, we should laugh. Those big laughs that make your tummy hurt. From time to time, we should, we should really give expression to the exuberant joy that befits wonderful, wonderful promises that God gives us in His Word. Of course, it's just not, it's not even woven into our psychology to do that all the time, every time. We can't, we can't always, just like our cars, can't always run at 5,000 RPMs the way that they do maybe when you're accelerating to get onto the highway. You can't always run your car like that. And we can't always run our car with giddy joy going around laughing all the time. Somebody, somebody talks about the gospel and you drop. <laughs> we can't always do that. It's just not part of our psyche. It's not part of our wiring. But man, from time to time, these things should be hitting us. And we shouldn't be stifling these things. From time to time, we should come to the foot of the cross and smile. From time to time, we should think of our inheritance in heaven and laugh. Just as on the opposite end of the spectrum, sometimes we should come to the foot of the cross and weep over our sin. Sometimes, sometimes we should just be overwhelmed by these things. On this end of the spectrum or that. And we shouldn't suppress that emotion. True biblical Christianity isn't stoicism. Where we keep a stiff upper lip. And stand up straight and tall and show no emotion. Because biblical Christians don't smile. True biblical Christianity. Involves exuberant joy. Among other things. And we see that happening right here. In this passage. We should, if anything, be all the more giddy, all the more joyful, all the more exuberant as we consider these same promises made to Abram. Because from our vantage point in history, we can actually see these things more clearly than he did, you know. Jesus said, blessed are the eyes to see what you see and the ears to hear what you hear. There was many kings and prophets that longed to see these things. 
but never did. You see, they knew that there was a Messiah, a Christ coming. We know His name, Jesus. They saw something of these things, but we see it all open, fully disclosed, fully revealed. You see, Christ Jesus is the telos or the goal of biblical revelation. That which everything in the Bible has been driving towards is Christ Jesus. Which is one argument, by the way, for cessationism. The cessation of prophecy. God's not revealing new things anymore because He's already revealed everything. There's nothing left to be revealed. You see, when you see Jesus, you're not looking for new revelation, fresher, deeper, more profound things. You don't, what are you going to find that's more profound than the Son of God hanging on a cross for the redemption of the world? What are you going to find that's fresher than the outpouring of His Spirit to live within you, to seal you for that day of redemption, to cause you to walk in His statutes until that day that all things are consummate? You see, we see so clearly, so clearly, what Abram and these Old Testament saints saw from a distance. Jesus says, Abram saw my day and was glad. Oh, he saw it all right. But let me tell you, we see Jesus' day more clearly than he did. And so we should be more glad. Sarah, on the contrary, hears these things. Abram asks, can it be? Sarah, as it were, states, it cannot be. Sarah, to Sarah, it sounds like crazy talk. It just sounds like maybe she's gotten sick of it from age 66 to age 90. We know that she hoped in God. We know that she was a holy woman of old. So I'm not saying that she wasn't a believer. But even believers can struggle with sin. And she was in this passage for sure. Struggling with sin, struggling with this disbelief. Maybe she was thinking, oh, here we go again. After, after 24 years of talk. Sometimes, as we're confronted with these glorious promises that were made to Abraham and fulfilled in Christ Jesus, sometimes we're tempted to have that same heart response as Sarah had. We hear that Jesus is going to return. The dwelling place of God is going to be with man. There'll be no more sorrow, no more crying, no more tears, no more pain, for the former things have passed away. And that voice from heaven says, Behold, I have made all things new. And some of us say, Can it be? And others of us say, It cannot be. We feel like at least from time to time, this is just talk. Years and years go by. Our lives tick, tick, tick by. And I'm still sinning. I'm still surrounded by people who sin. And I'm still hurting. And I'm still struggling. It cannot be. So our laugh becomes a laugh scoffing 
Certainly this is the mindset of the unbeliever, you know. They look at us gathered here tonight talking about a crucified Jewish peasant. Talking about how he's not really dead, you know. This guy that died so long ago, and everybody thinks he's dead, he's not actually. You should come to our church because we worship him. Well, have you ever seen him? No, but he has a spirit, and his spirit lives within us. Oh. And this is the mindset of the unbeliever. You see? It cannot be. And we say, we say all things are going to be made new. This world, this world doesn't end with the sun burning out or something like that or, or nuclear war and just going into a wasteland. Of, this life is, this existence is not just an endless reorganization of matter, but there's somebody above orchestrating it all. And he has good plans for us. Oh, <laughs> keep telling yourself that. If, that. if that makes you feel better about your life, but their laughter is the laughter of scoffing. It cannot be. That's the mindset of unbelievers for sure, but it can creep into us even as believers. We need to recognize it as sin. As we confessed even earlier in the service, we are often slow of heart and foolish to believe all the prophets have spoken as the disciples were on the road to Emmaus. We are often like Zechariah. God has spoken very clearly to us. In fact, dare I say more clearly than to Zechariah. Because he could have maybe misheard, but we can go back and reread and double check. We can, we can have someone come along and say, does this say what I think it says? Whereas Zechariah didn't have that privilege. He was alone in that place. Dare I say more clearly. But at least as clearly, he's spoken to us as, we've, as he spoke to Zechariah. And all too often, even we as Christians are slow to believe it. This is sin. This is sin. We need to turn away from this sin. And we need to remember who God is. <laughs> I am God Almighty, he says. That's how he introduces himself in Genesis chapter 17 and verse 1. He leads with reassurance. As he comes to Abram to say, I'm about to knock over that first domino in a chain of events that will bring to fulfillment everything I've promised you. He leads with reassurance. I am God Almighty. What I'm about to say to you, listen and believe it. You can take it to the bank because I am God Almighty. As he says to Sarah later, in our passage, is anything too hard for the Lord? God really has sent His Son into this world to save sinners. Christ really did die on the cross as a substitute for sinners. The wrath of God really was poured out upon Him at that mountain on that mountain. He really does clothe us in His righteousness. We really are reconciled to God. 
We really have been adopted as His children. We truly have been predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son. He really has taken out a heart of stone and given us a heart of flesh. He really has put His Spirit within us to cause us to walk in His statutes. He really will bring to completion that work that He has begun in us. Christ Jesus really is coming back to make all things new. No matter how that sounds to the outside observer, no matter how that sounds to the outside listener, I'm going to the bank with that. And you should go to the bank with that because God is God Almighty and nothing is too hard for the Lord. Whoever believes in Him shall not perish but have everlasting life. Jesus said, He who believes in Me, though He dies, yet shall He live. As in Adam all die, so in Christ all shall be made alive. But each in his own order. Christ the first fruits, and then at his coming, those who have fallen asleep in him. Christian, your body really will not remain in the grave forever. All things will not continue on their present trajectory forever. One day, Christ really will return and every eye will see Him. And He will raise those who have fallen asleep with Him. And this seed of Abraham, in whom all the nations of the earth This seed of Abraham will truly bless all the nations of the earth. It is going to happen because God is God Almighty and nothing is too hard for the Lord. So let's not scoff like Sarah. Let's not laugh a scoffing laugh like Sarah. Let's not say like Sarah, it cannot be. Let's laugh like Abraham. Joyful, exuberant laughter. And let's say like Abraham, can it be? Can it really be? In fact, let's do that now. Let's sing in closing. And can it be? And can it be?